Hello and welcome back to Background Worlds. I understand that it's been a while since I've done a proper update and that that doesn't make much sense actually given the amount of political events that have been going on. I apologize for that but hopefully now we will stick to a bit more of a tighter schedule rather than before. Um, good news is that now I'm back with Patrick who did the three-part Fast into Insurrection with me back when the BLM protests were in full swing in the US and Patrick is now a co-host for Background Worlds so you will be seeing a lot more of him and I'm very glad that we did this episode on the US elections and what to expect, what to think and Democrats, Proud Boys, QAnon, what have you. Uh, I hope to update this podcast with a lot more regularity and i do have some plans for it and i do have some stuff lined up for it so stay tuned and i hope you enjoy this episode if you would like to support us we don't have anything set up for background world specifically conjointly so far maybe that will change over time we'll just have to see how it plays out however you can find me at twitter at livestock ascend or at substack at livestock ascending.substack.com it, I believe that these are the easiest ways to reach out to me. Patrick is a bit more out of um, out of the internet, but if you do pass anything on to me, I'm more than happy to talk to him. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Good. Hey, so how are you doing? Okay, I'm doing all right, mate. As far as stuff goes, um, I'm doing fine. I've been mostly keeping with U.S. politics since. In lockdown and everything. Why has something interesting been happening? Well, um, not in the UK, but I, I'm fairly sure that you've got a few stories to tell. I think <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's all about. How are you doing? Well, it's uh, like uh, maybe I made this joke last time, but it's like the old Chinese curse, right? May you live in interesting times. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a few people on the internet going like. God, it feels so shitty to be living through historical events. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not one really for uh, quoting Lenin all that often, but uh, he really said it well with, uh, uh, I'm probably going to butcher the direct quote, but it was something along the lines of, uh, there are years where nothing happens and weeks where decades happen. Yeah, yeah, understandably so. But, um... The U.S. has seen ups and downs, I believe. I mean, it depends on what you call an up and what you call a down and where you call it proper trough. Um, so, have you voted? Must I? Is that a, a personal question? Is it, can I ask that? Is oh, that I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind you asking that. That's fine. Um, yeah, I did vote. Um, I live in a super solidly blue state. Uh, uh, Massachusetts is always, every time, forever going to go to the Democrats. So I didn't have to do all of that soul searching that so many other like lefty Americans were doing online about whether or not they wanted to hold their nose and vote, vote for Joe Biden. Um, you know, I could write in Eugene Debs if I wanted to. Um, so I did. I did vote, um, and you know, again, not that it matters given where I live, um, and apparently not that it really matters. Uh, that anybody voted anyway, because we're going to litigate the whole thing through uh, Fox News and OANN, and you know um, the reality of the vote count doesn't seem to to really uh, matter like half a shit for a lot of people. Yeah, I see that, and I find it to be quite um, 
quite funny actually, like a bit a bit hilarious because um, being Latin American, mm. I've been actually, uh, I kind of stepped back from keeping up with all my gringo friends, friends and US friends and I saw during the week of the election, it's fucking ridiculous to say the week of the election, but um, during the week in which the votes were being counted, I was mostly keeping up with it through my friends in Brazil and um, you guys don't really well generally US people don't really come to grasp with a coup that easily does it yeah uh, I mean you know I think that that's uh, one of the more interesting aspects of this is that there's been like just a constant deluge of media outlets for months saying like oh John Donald Trump is planning a, t a coup Donald Trump is planning a coup uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of uh, speculation as to whether or not how successful that would be. Um, but then once we hit the election, they all switched over. And I think that probably some in some way their editorial board did this consciously because they think that it's the you know responsible thing to do. But they all switched over from that kind of talk to like, well, uh, the coup didn't work. Uh, there, there is no coup. When, you know, we can see that like, uh, we can see that like, I mean, it's farcical. It's 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 stupid. The way everything that Donald Trump does is stupid. Uh, it probably is not going to be successful, uh, but certainly he has taken all of the actions that you would expect of somebody who's trying to retain power illegitimately. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how closely you closely you follow things, but again, you know, somebody with a background out of Latin America, you would probably uh, know what it means when the president starts firing all of the civilian leadership at the Department of Defense and putting loyalists in charge of the military. Mm -hmm. And now, wh whether that actually turns into anything, I kind of doubt, right? Like, I just don't think there are very, there are various reasons for that uh, that we can go into, but I don't think he's going to be successful. But what matters more to me, I think, in the long run is that uh, you know, all bets are off from here on out. There's never going to be another election in the United States where um, both sides accept the outcome as legitimate if they lose. It's never going to happen again. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, in many levels, uh, I, there was sort of many discussions amount, amongst my friends and amongst um, U.S. friends as well as to uh, the, ma the the key features of how how much should we be celebrating Trump as opposed to being panicked by Biden, mm -hmm. uh, Kamala Harris um, being a VP as for representation versus her historical record as a prosecutor, and Trump's coup attempt, and the way that I try and approach these things and how all these things will, will reverberate not not only the US but in the world. Um, the way that I try to approach these things as to justify my keenness in understanding the US election as opposed to um, my anarchism. Yeah, yeah. I try to see this like, I take it as a measure of the opposition, always. So when I'm reading the votes, I'm not thinking about, oh, is this state, state going to turn blue or is it going to turn red? and you know who's gonna take it i'm trying to see I, I was completely shivering with how razor thin were the margins of people like begging for a 200 vote margin a 2000 vote margin in the state so they could secure a state this is not something to be celebrated in my 
opinion by any means because it means that half the country like if it wasn't for 2000 votes mm -hmm. trump would still be legitimized for another four years and that says a lot about well in my opinion like it's gotten even more polarizing than 2016. um yeah 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 and i feel like with regards to the coup it's what what bedazzles me and makes me very very anxious and um fearful because i do not wish a coup upon anyone not yeah, in the yeah. us um what bedazzles me and makes me a bit like anxious and afraid is not the fact that trump is trying to execute a legal um you know suing all the all the all the states and everything trying to legally stack his loyalists up and attempt a coup we already knew that was going to happen that's been discussed since the beginning of, of lockdown oh yeah he was very open about it throughout the entire campaign right i mean he he yeah. didn't even pretend that he wasn't going to try to get up to shit like this he was he was extremely open about it he was sort of bragged about it and so you know everybody making the surprise pikachu face right now it's like what the fuck have you been watching for the past six months you know exactly and um yeah what scares me most though is um the lack of physical response from the opposition um because even though the the coup kind of feels for most people as if it's in the realm of ideas we'll have to see how the transition comes along but if you're gridlocked between a fascist um tv host specialist narcissist who's trying to coup your country and on the other hand the pseudo opposition is asking for funds for a transition period mm -hmm. um it seems like it's scary enough that people should already be sort of taking it to the streets um i will surely i think that some in a year where we've seen chile and bolivia and guatemala now and even brazil although brazil's sort of a bit more of a blm directed protest than mm -hmm. anything else um in but in a in a year where we've seen what happened to chile and bolivia for instance um the fact that um democrats and opposition and like general left of extremely right um citizens who are concerned for u.s democracy quote unquote um the fact that people are not taking to the streets with the mere idea that Trump is doing that because they feel like they've already won, pretty fucking scary. Yeah, know? yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it is reverberating, you know, very negatively in some ways. Uh, like, you're, you're already seeing the physical consequences of that. So one example of that was uh, last weekend in Washington, D.C., uh, there was uh, what, what has come to be known as the Million MAGA March, which, by the way, uh, uh, for any non-U.S. listeners, so MAGA, Make America Great Again, you know, that's the sort of slogan that the Trump campaign has used. Uh, the Million Man March was a uh, march that was, I believe, in the late 90s, put together by Louis Farrakhan and other leaders of the black community in the United States. Uh, basically as a sort of proto-BLM type movement. And they, they stole the fucking name, right? Like, they, they can't come up with anything on their own. So and now, so you have the Million MAGA March. And, of course, they were well under that. I think most of the estimates that I've seen put the number of marchers uh, in support of Trump at uh, something around 50,000. Um, I mean, it was a substantial march, don't get me wrong. Uh, but uh, it wasn't, you know, they didn't blow the doors off the place. The problem with with it was, or one of the many problems with it was, 
that uh, the sort of like liberal cultural leaders of the United States, people like George Takei, who has, you know, of course, Mr. Sulu from Star Trek, but now he's uh, Mr. Politics guy online. Not to say anything against him, like, you know, I, I, have, I have overall positive feelings for him, but he definitely is on this kind of like American complacent liberal end of the spectrum. And uh, these folks were out there saying, like, don't go out and counter-protest, right? So they're, they're telling their uh, more, you know, non-leftist liberal uh, um, uh, audiences, don't go out to counter-protest. And as a result, what happened was that uh, about the numbers, I may be off slightly on, but you had something like uh, 80 counter-protesters show up at certain places and about uh, 200 Proud Boys, which meant that the numbers were such that the uh, the the kind of street fighting, you know, uh, proto fascist uh, right felt emboldened to attack rather than to just shout. Uh, and as a result, at least three people that I am aware of were stabbed by the Proud Boys. Uh, a number of other people were beaten up, and of course, the police stand by and they don't do anything. Um, you know, so it's it's moments like that where you know I really regret that that the the closest allies or like the most numerous allies that we have are the kind of Democratic Party, you know, Kamala Harris, Harris standing uh, um, liberals of the United States. You know, it's those people, uh, if the trajectory continues the way that it has, are never going to stand up. The worst that they're ever going to do is, you know, when Trump opens the death camps, they'll write a strongly worded letter to the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree completely, and it's it's just beyond frustrating because um, for a country that prides itself in air quotes defeating Nazism, I don't know how many years ago, um, the iron will of combating fascism and bringing democracy back into domestic territory, just like they bring it to anywhere else in the world kind of crumbles <laughs> really yeah. easily there's no yeah. iron will there and i've seen some of these um liberal uh accounts like brooklyn dad saying like do not engage do not leave your house that's what they want they want blood etc et and it's just um being a leftist you kind of like get used to be frustrated 24 7 there's not a moment of peace mm -hmm. i think that i've only felt true peace when i saw the results of the chile referendum that mm -hmm. was the one day that i was like oh okay finally i can i can drink for something <laughs> when uh yeah uh, when uh, when Sinn fein took the um majority of, of seats in the uh, not the majority but the largest number of seats in the irish elections last year i felt a little bit of that I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? Though it just uh... no, no problem. Uh, I said uh, when when Sinn Fein won the Irish elections last year. That was another oh, one of yeah. those days. Yeah, yeah. It's just th there's so few moments where you can relax, and none of like l next to no, no none of these days happens in the U.S. I think that the only moment that was like, oh, this is pretty dope, was when I, the. Minneapolis pr police precinct was set on fire, and I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And ever since then, it's just been the com the the constant feel of um, how well if the coup happens, and you know if if Trump is able to affect basically what what's happening is people are kind of putting 
uh, destiny at the hands of those who surround Trump. Because if they allow the coup to happen, then everyone's just going to go like, oh, um, and there you go. You know, it's, it's and it's sort of like this obliviousness as to the way that the U.S. operates over the entire world, but now turned inward. Yeah. No one knows how to deal with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the classic, you know, like the Foucault's boomerang, right? Like the yeah. the tools of colonialism brought home and applied to the, the population at home. And the United States has been practicing that literally since its beginning. We've always had colonized people within the borders, uh, the political borders of the United States, whether those are indigenous people, uh, whether those are black people, right? I mean, the United States has a long history of this. It might just be, though, that now we have reached a point where in order to hold on to structures of power, to keep things uh, running as they, quote unquote, are supposed to be, uh, that you have to enact that on the population in general, right? But I also think, and you, you said it, uh, you said something along the lines of like, basically waiting to see what the people around Trump are going to do. I think that there is a lot of that going on right now. And there's a lot of sort of like, uh, you know, tut-tutting and finger-wagging at uh, so-called mainstream Republicans who are enabling Trump's behavior. And I think that, you know, I mean, for one thing, obviously it's stupid to expect Mitch McConnell or anybody else who's in the Republican leadership to come out against Trump. It, it would be a political suicide for them because he is so completely um, taking control of the Republican Party, right? Even if he dies tomorrow, it will remain the party of Trump for decades to come. He energized uh, that party in a way that I guess you could sort of uh, see a preview of it with the election of Obama and how that brought out like all of the worst impulses um, in the American psyche. Uh, Trump has just made just mainlined that shit right into American politics, right? But in private, here's the thing: in private, I, I agree with those who are who are basically saying that the Republican Party uh, operat operatives, the the, the high-level apparatchiks in the Republican Party, don't particularly like Donald Trump. In fact, they they probably see him with a lot of the same disdain that you know the the upper echelons of the Democratic Party do because he's gauche, right? He's he's rude. Uh, he doesn't say the right things, you know, he's, he's, he's an outsider in that sense, not in the sense that he's actually an outsider to power, but he's an outsider to the culture of power in the United States. And he's already given them everything they want, that he's given them absolute control over the federal judiciary, which is going to redound to uh, all of our detriment for decades to come. He's given them gigantic tax cuts for the rich. Uh, he's given them a hollowed out uh, federal government. They've got everything they want out of him, and they would be perfectly happy to see him lose this election. And then, uh, I mean, you know, the Biden presidency is over before it starts because the Democrats didn't retake the Senate. So they literally can do nothing for the next two years. And then they'll get spanked in the midterms and lose the White House in 2024. Right. So that's that's what the Republican Party uh, sort of like power structure would be could get behind very easily. Now the problem here is that uh, there is a, a very real divide in the Republican power structure, where the old guard that has been in the Senate or in the House for decades came up under the neocon uh, or maybe the Newt Gingrich, you know, um, contract with America. Uh, Republicans, where there was some kind of ideological basis, but that ideology, I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of a free market fundamentalist, uh, um, neoconservative colonialist project. That's all gone now. Uh, 
what is left are the sort of hooting masses of, um, I mean, I saw a figure recently that said something along the lines of 50% of Republicans now, well, at least on some level, accept the QAnon version of the story of political power in the United States. And that's the Republican base now. So the people who actually have decision-making power, the people who could put absolute stop to Trump's attempt here to hold on to power, are, are completely incapable of doing it because they know they'd immediately get primaried and they would, they would lose, their, lose their jobs, right? Um, so they're, they're riding this tiger that they have whipped up over the past few decades. This, this, uh, and I hate to use the term populism because I think, you know, this is, it's only a vague sort of like shadow of populism. But they're, they're riding this kind of like wave of resentment that they have stoked and they can't get off however much they might want to. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what that turns into in the long run, I don't know. Um, I don't know if the party tries to revert to where it was. Uh, I don't know if it fractures. I don't know if it embraces this new Trumpism. But uh, right now, I think that's the bind that the, that the, Democratic, oh, sorry, the Republican Party is in in the United States. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you feel like presume that Trump actually gives up power and we go into a very lovely uh, field of flowers, Biden presidency for the next four years. Everything's beautiful. There's no more depression. There's no more, um, the economy goes great. You're asking a lot of me here. Yeah. World peace. We all hold hands and run towards the sunset for four years. Um, Do you feel like the Republican Party would put um, Trump up for a next ticket in 2024, or do you think that they'll probably look into other names? I've heard about Tim Cotton. I don't know who he is, Mm -hmm. um, but people on Twitter seemed quite enraged that he would be a top name. Yeah, Tom Cotton uh, is a senator from, if I remember correctly, Missouri, somewhere out in the Midwest there. Uh, I don't recall. But uh, anyway, I mean, Tom Cotton is kind of the... I don't know if he himself would be the the, the kind of tr- torchbearer of a what we could call like competent Trumpism. Sort of, he's the he's the the competent version of American fascism. Uh, and I I've certainly joked about President Tom Cotton myself. Part of me though thinks that a guy like that is never going to capture the Trump base because the Trump base really isn't all that interested. My my take on it is that the, isn't that they're all that interested in the ideas or ideology of Trumpism, such as it is, they're interested in the drama, in the personality. They're interested in, you know, this person who says like, oh, the world is very unfair to me because they feel that the world is very unfair to them. And you know what? In many ways, they're right. Uh, This is, it's a classic kind of false consciousness narrative, Um, at least for some of them, right? Like their, their lives do suck. They recognize that because as much as we may wish to dismiss them as dumb people, they're oftentimes not dumb people. They're just misinformed, uh, misled, Um, and they're pissed off, and Trump is pissed off, so they see themselves in him. I don't see that happening necessarily with a guy like Tom Cotton, right? I, I I think if you wanted to point to somebody who would be a perfect extension of Trumpism, it's probably, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to observe this, but it's probably like Tucker Carlson, Carlson if you're familiar with him. Yeah, yeah. Right, where it's yeah. a, he's, he's articulate, he's certainly more articulate than Trump. He comes off as less deranged than Trump, but if you pick apart what he's saying at its core, his message is basically the same. 
right? Which is that your life is bad because gay people can get married. Uh, and and yeah. the, the whole host of kind of cultural grievances that come along with that. Yeah, I never thought about Tucker Carlson being like a candidate, but he, he does feel like a spiritual... I'm not saying... I'm not going to say successor, but he does feel like somewhat of a rationalization of Trumpism in the media. Mm -hmm. He tries to make sense of Trump for Trumpists. He tries to make Trump make sense for his fan base, you know? Right. Um, one thing that I do get an impression, though, uh, is that with Trumpism, the Republican Party put a lot of investment in candidates as brands. Um, and not just, like, in the old, like, manufacturing consent idea of that i mean sure that has always happened but um with trump it kind of got taken to a new level where the candidate in its in him in itself the candidate in his own personal life needs to be able to represent all the flaunts and wealth of america whatever america represents mm -hmm. so i feel like that's a, a point where biden and um not so much Obama because Obama was just like the most charming presidential yes great statesman ever but um Biden kind of misses that mark in respect of him being like a statesman mm -hmm. whereas Trump is like an entrepreneur a billionaire you know with his golden toilet and his massive hotels and his jet planes and his golf courses and you know he kind of flaunts a lot so I feel like kind of like the Republican Party spent so much they le they were leaning so much into Trumpism that now they kind of got ended up being attached with this idea that their candidate needs to be able to flaunt and to be a bit of an exhibitionist and a bit of a narcissist in order to convey this whole um, self-importance that Trump has set up for himself politically as right. a mirror of him as a as a corporate guy, so I'm not sure. I mean, um, Tucker Carlson would be, from the from the point of view of, of the Republican Party, he he would be a sound bet. But um, do you think that he would run? I I don't know. I mean, I I've heard people speculate about this, and uh, I mean, he hasn't done the the full Sherman uh, is the term that's used in American politics. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but General Sherman, one of the top U.S. generals during the Civil War, was asked to run for president after Ulysses S. Grant uh, left office. Uh, and he said something along the lines of, uh, uh, if, uh, if nominated, I will not campaign. If elected, I will not serve. Uh, so Tucker Carlson hasn't done one of those. But I think um, he also hasn't really, to my knowledge, put forward any feelers or uh, put anything out there that would suggest that he is interested in running. And, you know, one of the arguments that he w wouldn't want to is because it would be an enormous pay cut for him. And frankly, in some ways, he would lose a lot of power um, being constrained by the, you know, the, 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 well, what we used to think of as the limitations of the office. I'm not sure how much of that holds anymore. Um, but I think, you know, the problem that I see going forward is uh, that you are going to have so like the class interests of the Republican Party haven't really changed since before Trump. Right? Or, uh, they're similarly motivated towards uh, the economic interests of uh, their donor base, right? Um, the, the Republican donor base 
you know, the Democratic donor base tends to be uh, tech and finance, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies, and the Republican donor base tends to be energy companies, gas and oil, exploitation, things of that sort, right? So they're still politically oriented around that, and they don't want to upset the apple cart too, too much, right? Um, the, the instability of the last four years never really spilled over until you got to COVID. It never really spilled over and hurt their, uh, uh, the bottom line of their donor base, right? So I think it becomes a race between whether or not the kind of donor class of the Republican Party embraces this rhetoric as a way to keep their guys in, in control, uh, to keep the money flowing, um, or if they take this as an opportunity to shy back from that. If they embrace it, then you're going to see the uh, just the you know sort of gray-suited apparatchiks of the Republican Party um, continue to echo this kind of uh, grievance politics of Trump. If they back away from it, then you're going to see them starting to talk about returning to normalcy, uh, and uh, you're going to see them maybe you know offer uh, like an olive twig, not a full branch, because they're not really going to do anything, to, but they may offer some kinds of concessions to Joe Biden. But I think that either way, they're going to run into a problem. Um, if they embrace Trumpism, they need to find another Trump, because Trumpism is a cult of personality. It's not a set of policies or ideas, right? It, it is purely just about, I mean, and that's why, like, obviously Trump believes nothing. We can't say that he's an ideological figure, but that's why I think that it's, it's fair to call him at least some form of a fascist, because he embraces this idea of, like, a direct connection between the people and the leader, right? That somehow he embodies their voice. Um, uh, you know, as, as ridiculous as that sounds to you or I, many, many people are just fanatically devoted to that idea when it comes to Donald Trump. So they need to find another Donald Trump, and that's a hard thing to do. Uh, he is kind of a singular individual in American public life. If they back away from Trumpism, then they run the risk of uh, splitting the party. Because there are people that are going to be ride or die for this vision of America. Um, I think that, the, that those forces of reaction, those forces of um, like a, a fascist vision of America have been energated, energized in a way that is not going to go away anytime soon. But what I think it actually may turn into is, I mean, this sounds hyperbolic, but I can't see it going, I can't see it not becoming violent. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I just don't know how at this point we avoid wide-scale violence. Um, yeah. We, uh, I, I read something recently. I read something recently um, that was written from the point of view of a public health worker uh, in Missouri, and she was employed by the state to uh, basically do uh, health education for the public. Uh, go around and, and of course in the COVID, in COVID days, her job is to go around and tell people, well, you know, here's how social distancing works. Here's how wearing a mask helps prevent you from spreading this virus. And uh, she, uh, she told of going to a, a community meeting in uh, sort of suburban Missouri, uh, along with a couple of nurses and doctors still in their hospital scrubs and being greeted by angry people with guns yelling her off stage and then followed up with death threats against her children. 
I don't know how, if people are that like charged up about something that has now killed a quarter of a million Americans, if they're unable to comprehend the fact that we, we live in the same world on that basic physical reality, uh, I don't know how we find any kind of common ground politically. This gap is just so yawning. Um, now, I'm not saying that like every grandma on Facebook is going to strap a suicide vest to herself and go into the nearest Whole Foods. I don't foresee that at all. But certainly, the United States right now is seeing an explosive growth in the militia movement, in far-right movements in general. Uh, the Proud Boys are recruiting like crazy. You know, the, these groups are growing. And these are groups that are explicitly dedicated to the idea of political violence. Now, they may frame it in terms of like, oh, we're defending American freedoms or American rights. But, you know, you and I can all read behind that. What they are there to do is to put the boot on the throat of people that they don't like. Um, and if Trump is not in a position of power to do that for them, I think you're going to see an increase maybe of stochastic terrorism, maybe of you know uh, mass shootings, but I think you're gonna start to see, maybe we talked about this a little bit last time, but something resembling kind of the Italian years of lead, right? Where mm -hmm. you've got targeted killings against government officials, against prominent people on the left. Uh, it's going to get pretty grim for quite a while. Yeah, it's completely unhinged. Um... To be honest, I kind of expected there to be a larger violence wave um, in the week of the election. Oh, yeah. The MAGA march. I was actually, like, I was unsurprised that three people were stabbed. I was surprised that no one was killed. Yes, yeah. Um, I was very, like, I went to bed thinking I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to pull up Twitter, and there's going to be blood on my timeline. There's going to be, like, gory images of people being maced, pepper sprayed by p Proud Boys, um, Antifa black blocks being like hurled around in the, in, on, down to the pavement, you know, um, people being jumped and stabbed and maybe someone, some shots fired here and there. Um, so it kind of like, it's terrible, but I kind of thought that it was going to be worse. And that makes me think of like, I, I don't know. I think I'm puzzled by the way that Trump is saw reaction, reacting to the to the vote counts as and to how they're going to react to the transition mm -hmm. next year. Maybe that will be the moment where the powder keg goes off. Um, but surely enough, and I've been speaking to a lot of Brazilian friends, and they sort of like they sort of don't believe it. They're like, "Oh, you're being, you're kind of exaggerating it, in it, like." The, okay, the U.S. has guns, but it's not that polarized. Like Joe Biden, one, I'm like, no, you need to like go after U.S. citizens, and they're like, no, but it's LARPing. No, if you look up like the Proud Boys, as much as it's it might it, it doesn't have to have like the landscape of like fucking Syria or Venezuela or um, it doesn't have to look like an all-out fledged like. Uh, tanks rolling down the streets, people going against the state, and also sectarian violence. It doesn't have to look like that in order for people to understand that, you know, a civil war might just be afoot. And um, I I, 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 there's no way, it, it's, it's a bit of a, a crossroads because 
it kind of became i think that it's beyond the point questioning whether that's uh a quote-unquote good thing or not because i don't ever think that wars are good mm -hmm. i don't think that they're nice i don't think that they are you know for all my anarchist tendencies i do not think that this war will end the united states of america henceforth i don't think that it's necessary um however i think that it's beside the point whether how leftists feel pro or against violence at this point because truth be told it's gonna happen <laughs> so, yeah 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 um i don't know um what's your feelings about like i i heard that there's still going to be a few senate run runoffs do you think that the democrats stand any chance to that uh i don't know i mean my gut tells me no i think both of those seats are going to go republican they were, uh, I mean, it was, you know, they, they went to runoff because none of the Republican candidates for those seats were able to get to 50% in the general. But uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, that's because they were running, uh, it was basically what's called a jungle primary, where anybody who wants to can throw their hat in the ring. And if nobody gets to 50%, you take the top two people and you make them run off against each other. So uh, I, I think what you... What you're finding, what you're going to see there is that the people who did not vote for the Democrat and split their votes among several Republicans are just going to consolidate behind whatever Republican is running. Now, it's possible that through some you know miracle of political organizing, the Democratic Party brings out uh, like literally everybody in Atlanta or whatever, and that they're able to take those seats. But I think it's vanishingly unlikely. It maybe helps a little bit, maybe makes it a little bit uh, more likely uh, that you might, it might be during a period where uh, the sort of Trumpists are demoralized, I think. Uh, and this goes back to what uh, you were saying before about, you know, a lack of violence. I think a lot of it is because um, due to the media environment that they're living in, a lot of these people really do think that uh, the big reveal is right around the corner and that, you know, the Supreme Court is going to wade in and say, no, you know, China stole the election along with Hillary Clinton and George Soros. And, you know, uh, we're going to appoint uh, uh, Donald Trump as emperor for life. Right. Like, I think that a lot of people truly believe the sort of like uh, transparent bullshit around election fraud. And what they're doing right now is just kind of holding off to wait and see all of that come out because they're waiting to sip more liberal tears, right? They're, they're, they're waiting to, uh, they, they, they're not quite capable yet of uh, um, going past the, uh, of living in the real world where that's not gonna happen. But once it becomes undeniable, once Joe Biden is actually in the White House, I think that's where you're going to see um, a real area of danger and you're going to see a real split. There are going to be a lot of people who voted for Trump. I'm not in any way thinking that, you know, of the, what was it, 60 million people that voted for Donald Trump, that they're, as I said, grandma's not going to go into the, uh, into the, the, uh, the local grocery store with a suicide vest, right? Most of those people are going to just sink further into the cynicism that uh, leads to American politics having such a low rate of voter participation in the first place. A lot of those people are just going to go like, well, we had our chance and I guess we lost and life will always get worse forever. 
um, and they're just going to kind of sink back into being apolitical or grumbling online. But some of those people, the ones that, you know, whose rhetoric we've been talking about, will see this as a coup by Joe Biden. And if there's one thing that American, uh, that American reactionaries love to do, it's to masturbate about the American Revolutionary War and masturbate about, you know, dying, you know, the blood of patriots shed for our freedom. And some of them are going to see themselves in that light. Uh, so I think that, yeah, I think what you're going to see is when the transition happens, assuming that, uh, you know, Donald Trump doesn't trip on his own dick and fall face first into a successful coup, which I think is very unlikely. Um, when Joe Biden takes office, that's where you're going to see, you know, who, who puts up and who shuts up among the, the far right. Some of them are just going to keep, you know, posting on parlor, and some of them are going to go quiet and start really planning. And that's where, that's where the danger lies. Yeah. And in opposition to that, um, and I feel like this is probably a, a pretty vague question, but try and be as descriptive as you can. <laughs> um, the people who do not like the people who will not act um, in a, sort of trying to catalyze a civil war. And I, I mean, like this encompasses from moderate Republicans to centrist Democrats to liberals to progressive Bernie bros and people who love Elizabeth Warren all the way down to the leftists of Portland and, and Seattle and what have you um, how do you feel think that these people will react when um, the factions actually start going violent because I feel like if these people actually organize uh, when we talk about organizing it, it kind of it involves some sort of tactical thinking so whether these people are going to try and establish uh, zones of dominance uh, in their neighborhoods, if they're going to start putting up check checkpoints, if they're going to openly recruit people to for uh, shooting ranges and grounds in, you know, um, training camps and stuff like that, if you're going to see a, a surge in neo-Nazi neighborhood um, little groups who are going to go after queer people and people of color and immigrants and etc and um how do you feel like most of it, it's it's a pretty it's not the biggest faction in 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 the u.s and i don't feel like they, it will go over 25 percent of the population but how do you feel like the other the large chunk of the americans would respond to that yeah i mean i i don't think i can competently make any prediction of that you know americans are just by and large so completely complacent there has not been any. Uh, um, there, the, the United States is just completely, as a, a historical anomaly, almost entirely untouched on the home front by anything like a full-scale scale war since the Civil War, since 150 years ago, and of course that was devastating. But even that, the population centers uh, in the North were, you know, left alone by that. Right? We don't have any experience really of this kind of organized political violence in the United States within anything like living memory. And Americans uh, are just, we are uh, largely, um, we are largely rich and privileged. And I, and I don't mean to suggest that every American is rich. Certainly there are lots of people living in abject poverty, but just as, speaking as a generality about the country, we are rich and privileged enough 
that we haven't had to give a shit about that stuff happening elsewhere. Right? We haven't had to pay any attention to the instability that we've often caused or that has arise, uh, arisen naturally in the rest of the world. So Americans don't have any idea about what they would do in, in a circumstance like that when civil society were to break down. Now, I don't really think that we're looking at you know these like uh, I, I think that it's a very outside chance that we end up in a circumstance that's like one of these preppers wet dreams right like we're we're not going to have a, a situation where you know the, the the electricity gets shut off all over the country and everybody has to wear spiky leather armor and drive around in Mad Max trucks like that that's that's farcical. Um, mm-hmm. But you know I mean I think what you what is more likely is that you would see something that comes to resemble. Uh, what we what what's often termed a failed state, right? Where there are parts of the United States uh, that are only tenuously under the control of the central government, right? Where that classic idea of the monopoly on violence becomes very much an academic thing, and it's not it's not true on the ground. Um, on the other hand, I will say that if Biden takes office. Uh, as much as the as much as the police state apparatus of the United States government is hostile to the left, if it's a like sort of like middle of the road conservative Democrat like Biden, and you have you know uh, uh, Qaeda in hopped up pickup trucks uh, executing queer people in the Midwest, the military and the police will largely fall in line. Some of them would not. But there, th- that's going to be anathema to the thinking of most of those people, right? So I think it's much more likely that you'll see this as a kind of like, you'll see the running street battles like we, we're starting to see more and more of. But those, I doubt, would be pitched battles with firearms. Those would be clubs and shields, right? And then you'll see terroristic attacks. Uh, and those may become much more common. I think we're still a long way from the complete dissolution of federal power, from the inability of the federal government to control certain areas of the country. The only way I can see that uh, not being the case is if you have a circumstance where, you know, so for example, imagine a case where Joe Biden issues an order that, you know, everybody has to take this coro- the, one of the new coronavirus vaccines when they're released for, uh, for the public. Uh, you may have governors of certain states who have kind of jumped onto this Trump, uh, the wave of Trumpism, say, you know, we are going to disobey that order. We're going to, uh, ar- you know, arrest and try anybody who comes into the United States. Oh, sorry, comes into the state who attempts to carry out that order. And then you set up a conflict that is not unlike the origins of the original American Civil War, where the state is basically saying, well, we're no longer listening to the federal government. The problem there, I think, is that, you know, the, the American Civil War, uh, the original one, <laughs> not, not 2.0 Electric Boogaloo, um, really did have an organizing set of questions and principles around it that had been brewing for decades, right? The debates around the fate of slavery uh, really animated people both North and South. And it's not to say, of course, that, you know, all Northerners or even the majority were abolitionists in some moral sense, but they did find slavery distasteful and wished to stop it from spreading outside the South. Um, I don't know that there's any such organizing principle right now on either side, frankly. Uh, I think it is just kind of team sports right now. 
um, because neither side is actually offering the average person anything that's worth dying for. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with the whole team sports remark. Um, it's soccer hooliganism. Yeah, I it it does feel like that, and it's it's funny because um, well, it's not funny. It's actually quite disgraceful. But um, if you think about it, um, the left is outnumbered, like a hundred percent, because we're not because the Democrats they do not sport the hooliganism fashion mm-hmm. they they just i i, I was going to ask you what what in what position do you think that the democrats are right now because they there's sort of this widespread aversion to their lukewarm decorum and that's not to say that people there's no not like liberals who will just like happy to be here um there definitely is and about you can see that with people who are um, asking for people to, to not go to the streets, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you've got um, a, there is a considerable amount of people who voted against Trump rather than for Biden, and there isn't a quite uh, large expression of uh, protests in the form of BLM and uh, anti-fascist protests and raids against ICE and sort of like there there are people who are interested in that sort of stuff and. It must needs be remarked that um, uh, Standing Rock, Occupy, and BLM all started under Obama. There's no reason to think that um, the questions that were asked during these protests have gone away or will not be asked again. Oh, yeah. And you can't counteract that with this whole um, militia faction hooliganism of the far right who really they're not for anything they're just against everything that's in the system that's sort of like um an expression that we have in brazil like oh um, my opinion my political stance is that i'm against everything that that's right there right now and it's just sort of like this centrist um not being for anything mm-hmm. but easily co-opted to fascism and, yeah, um, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, and I mean, Biden really came to power. His victory was on the back. His strategy, in some sense, worked, right? Like, as much as I think that it, in the long run it's going to be a weight around his neck, his his uh, electoral strategy was to pull off, you know, moderate conservatives in the suburbs who were disgusted by Trump, who were sick of sick of Trump, who had voted, maybe had voted for him or maybe had abstained from voting in 2016 because they just hadn't seen the full vision of him yet. And now looking at how disastrous he's been, they'd be ready to jump ship. And you know what? That actually does seem to have worked, right? He did definitely run up vote counts in uh, in suburban areas. The problem, of course, is that those people are still moderate conservatives, and they have no interest in supporting the Democratic Party in the long run. They, they are Republicans. So as soon as you get somebody who isn't as like grotesque as Trump, they're just going to go back to voting for Republicans, right? So Biden has no coalition that can stand up to the political pressures of the, of the current day. So what are, the Democrats, uh, what are the Democrats doing about this? Well, what they're doing is they're eating their own. They're turning on the left, particularly, right? So immediately after the election, there, you started to see tons of think pieces and tons of news articles and pub, uh, public officials, uh, elected officials coming out and basically saying like, well, we have to stop talking about Medicare for all because that's why we're losing. You know, and, and this is, uh, of course, in the face of the fact that like you can poll people in the United States and you can even poll Republicans 
the Republican-aligned voters and find that the majority of them are in favor of something like Medicare for all. So despite all facts to the contrary, their claim is that this election was as close as it was because of the left, because the Republicans ran, didn't really run against uh, Joe Biden. They ran against communism, right? It is fucking fascinating to me to, to, to live in 2020 and to find literally communism as one of the major talking points of a uh, of a uh, 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 one of the major political parties uh, in the United States today like the Cold War has been over for 30 fucking years um, and they're going back to that well I mean and it is McCarthyism it is not it's not the sort of like uh, very serious deadly but kind of quiet anti-communism of the Cold War consensus this is like rabid freak out Anybody who doesn't toe the line is it's it's bircherism. It is it's mental shit. Um, but you know, so they're but they're going to play that card no matter what. They've done it since Obama. It doesn't matter what you do; they're going to call you a communist. So, um, but the the fact that the Democrats are are kind of like are buying that as a uh, as a um, uh, uh, inwardly directed critique is really pretty terrifying because what it tells me is that the mainstream Democratic Party wants to move to occupy the space that's been vacated in uh, even on the sort of like Democrats by world standards, of course, are, have always been a center right party. But, you know, it, it, in American terms, the center uh, political center that was occupied by moderate Republicans, the Democrats want to stake that out. And they're entirely willing to sort of cut off their leg. Um, of any kind of progressivism and just toss that overboard, right? If the, if the Democratic Party as it exists right now could continue to perpetuate itself and to win seats by appealing to exactly the same people that elected uh, Reagan or George, uh, George W. Bush, they would happily do so. They have no principles and they have no ideology. So if, it, if push comes to shove, uh, and the Democratic Party as a political organization has to rise to any kind of a challenge. They are absolutely going to fall on their faces because they don't believe in anything. Yeah, I, I agree. Have you seen that, that interview with AOC where she absolutely bashes the Democratic um, establishment and says, like, it won't work. If you, if, you, if you keep on bashing on the left and you don't listen to us, we're going to get fucked on the midterms and then we're gonna get fucked again and like it's just gonna be incompetence have you seen that interview i think it's with the new i haven't seen times. yeah i haven't seen that specific interview but i mean i you know i i do try to pay attention to what she's saying because i think she's one of the few uh democratic elected officials that that actually has a spine and anything is standing for anything worth worth anything you know um, yeah. I have a lot of respect for her, um, and I think she's absolutely right about that, right? Like, the, the, the problem here is, like, we have to live in a country where 60 million people voted for Donald Trump. We have to deal with that reality, and you have to do some kind of cult deprogramming on those people. So how do you do that? Well, you can't do it, uh, you can't do it by scolding them. You can't do it by telling them that they're ignorant or bad or rude. Uh, all of those things just drive them further away from you. As much as it disgusts people, you have to do it by actually offering them something they want and making their lives better. That's the only way that you're going to break up this. Um, that you're going to break up this this political block, right? Right now, they hate you. 
but if you are able, and, and many of them would reject anything that you would do to help them, right? Like many of them, even if you were like, hey, I'm going to save you tens of thousands of, do of dollars a year in medical expenses, or I'm going to wipe out your student loan debt, or whatever, many of them would say like, no, fuck you, that's communism. That's true. But by actually pushing forward a you know real robust social democratic set of policies, you could pull a lot of these people over because like ultimately people are motivated by their material interests a lot of the time. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. And if you peeled off even 10 or 15% of the people that had swung to Trumpism because their lives suck and he at least was going to trigger the libs, you would have a you'd have a New Deal coalition again. You could actually do something in the United States to improve people's uh, uh, to improve people's lives. You would have a you would have control of Congress for forty years. You would basically rerun uh, the FDR playbook. But instead, we have Joe Biden. Joe Biden started out saying, "Well, maybe we'll forgive fifty thousand dollars worth of uh, um, student debt." He's now negotiated himself down to perhaps ten thousand dollars, but we're not sure about that. Like this is the uh, this is the, the height of his ambition, is to uh, cut his own offer to 20% of what he started out with. There's no way you can actually hold into power if that's what you're offering. Yeah, yeah, completely understood. In, a, in the year where the biggest conversations, like this is a, has a, been a year of intensities from BLM to defunding the, the police, uh, quite a propulsion in talking about abolitionist movement and leftism, mm -hmm. but also about student debt, uh, Medicare for all being basically an anchor of the democratic primaries. And, um, and throughout all of these conversations, we get to this point at the end of the year and the democratic party got what they wanted. And the first thing that they do is as expected, doubling down and tripling down and like bringing modesty into their government plan before the transition has even happened and it's mm -hmm. quite telling i think that i saw somewhere i'm not going to call it i'm not going to say it's official but someone tweeted that cnn reported that um joe biden was going to be working with cheney for foreign policy because they like each other or something like that he's not been officially appointed but he's going to be taken into consideration i mean and that for me. we now live in the world where i can't tell if that's a joke or not right like it, it, you know this is the world where like i'm not sure if i'm reading the onion anymore um yeah, I, I don't know about the Cheney thing, but certainly there are tons of people that are being pulled into the Biden sphere that are just the, the absolute worst operators in American politics, you know, and, and what we can expect is that he's absolutely going to appoint uh, basically like nothing but oil executives into positions of in the, uh, envir environmental policy, nothing but hospital executives into positions that are that regulate uh, the healthcare industry. It's just it's just more regulatory capture. Which again, like you're right, we absolutely should have expected it the whole time. Now I do want to say, um, you know, getting back, I kind of skipped over you. You, you were talking about uh, BLM and and the last time we talked in July. Uh, that was still very current. There was still a lot ongoing there. That's become much more quiescent in the United States right now. Um, and, and I think that that might be a great example of how American politics s sort of fails, uh, falls back in on itself, right? 
because it, it's sort of all spectacle and no real organizing. It's not to say or to take anything away from the people who did put in, you know, tons of time and energy into getting the BLM movement going, organizing marches, etc. Um, but there's nothing, I feel like there's almost nothing left of that movement. Uh, it has essentially gone away, and all that's left are a bunch of people with, you know, Black Lives Matter signs on their suburban front lawns. Uh, there are no policy victories from that movement. Even the little ones, even the little ones that, you know, looked promising at the beginning. So, for example, Minneapolis, where George Floyd was, was murdered, uh, the Minneapolis uh, City Council voted to slash funding to their police department. They've entirely reversed that position now. And in fact, if I remember correctly, they're raising the funding going to the police department uh, for the next fiscal year. Yeah, and that's happened all over the country. Uh, there have been some tiny victories won in local battles, but by and large, literally nothing has changed. And this is, as a, this is after what was the largest... Uh, street movement, the largest political insurrection uh, in American history, and it had no effect. It didn't move the needle. It's oh fuck now. It's uh, it's curious because as we speak, uh, BLM has kicked off in Brazil a couple mm -hmm. of nights ago. Um, basically, like same premise. Video came around of this older black man of sixty years old, actually, um, being brutally beaten to death by two security guards bouncers at a carrefour in in uh, southern Brazil if I'm not mistaken mm -hmm. and um, completely kicked off uh, a bunch of carrefours have been set ablaze uh, over the last 48 hours and you know it's nice footage and it, loads of like anarchist presence and um, leftist parties taking to the streets with most people um, but seeing what happened in the US, there's always, well, right now, a few cities in Brazil are sort of in the second runoff, the runoff for mayor. And one of them is Sao Paulo, which is Sao Paulo and Rio, which are the, like the biggest towns in Brazil. They're both on the runoff for mayor. So there's sort of like this chess game of how much can they reprehend uh, the protests without screwing up the election um, mm -hmm. especially in Sao Paulo because it's actually quite a progressive uh, opposition as to the neoliberal right-wing uh, mayor that's there right now so like it's good to see that these protests are happening I'm happy that I, I'm just always happy to see like damage to private property happening like that <laughs> I just like I can't not smile when I see the, that footage but having kept up with the whole BLM wave in the UK and in the US, I can't say that I'm expecting it to be sustainable or for it to go to the extent, I mean, surely we can look to Chile and Guatemala now and be like, well, maybe something of good can come out of it. But honestly, like this is very directed to a private corporation it's not addressing any uh, public policy makers. So it's even blander than in, in a sense of the range of effectiveness that it can reach than the US and UK broader BLM or even Nigeria um, uh, anti-police mm -hmm. uh, protests. 
but yeah, it's just it's just frustrating because you know you get a breath of fresh air and then you get like sort of a few impulses and you know for a week or two I was in the throes of the illusionments of the Chaz Chop in Seattle mm-hmm. and now we look back at that and it's sort of just sort of like that yellow teeth you know gasping moment of like well it almost could have but it it you know it didn't and people are still sort of reckoning with what that represented but yeah how do you feel that the left let and i mean like the left left yeah um, is positioned uh as of right now do you feel like they grew at least do you feel like there was a radicalization process going on amongst the people that is relevant uh yes but very cautiously right so i think uh, i mean you have to understand that like the, the the left with a capital l in the united states has been essentially irrelevant for decades uh and has been a tiny tiny fraction of uh american politics even people i mean i, I can take myself as an example you know i mean i grew up reading tons of uh like anarchist and left literature and was very sympathetic to views of that sort and didn't and yet still didn't actually get involved in left politics until much later in my life when I finally got just so sick of seeing everything suck forever. Even people in the United States who might be leftists are not organized in any way. Um, mm-hmm. and we are seeing a change in that. So, you know, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, has seen its uh, membership grow quite uh, quite rapidly over the course of uh, uh, over the course of Trump's presidency, to the point where I think they've passed a hundred thousand members now. But you know, one of the ways that uh, that somebody put this to me, and this was actually back when um, when DSA was quite a bit smaller, I think around maybe sixty thousand. So this may not hold any longer. But one of the ways that somebody put that in perspective to me was that this is the largest socialist organization in the United States, membership-based organization in the United States. And uh, the entire DSA has fewer members, or had at that time, fewer members than the NRA had just in New York City itself, right? So uh, when you compare the, the size and the level of organization of these left groups like you know, DSA, like Justice Democrats, if you want to include them as like sort of the social democratic wing of the Democratic Party, like the Socialist Rifle Association, all of them are growing very rapidly in terms of percentages, but they're not millions of people. They're not uh, really very well organized, right? They don't generally have a political program or platform that uh, that they're all dedicated to. Uh, and, uh, and they're, they're kind of just sort of social clubs for lefties at this point. Um, yeah. you know, and I think that, um, uh, in some ways, I think that, I mean, I think the comparison that you were sort of making to the insurrections that we saw in Latin America this year, um, I, I think that the comparison to, you know, the Yellow Vest movement in France is certainly not a perfect one, but, you know, that, that, that sort of idea of, like, street protests and property destruction as a means of affecting policy, those don't really apply at all in the United States. Uh, the media environment here is such that I think, in fact, as much as, you know, it might, might warm your little anarchist heart to see, like, a bank's windows get smashed out, that was the decisive blow 
against the BLM movement in the United States. Uh, the moment it turned to property destruction, everything else was put to the side and nobody cared about it anymore. At least, uh, at least sort of in the, the, the broader public sphere, if you weren't already on board and drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, so I don't want to get tied up terribly, terribly much in just in, you know, questions of optics or questions of tactics, but I, I think just factually in the United States, there isn't enough sympathy for these types of movements in the broader public that they can act in those kinds of ways without it just turning into backlash. You know, and you can see that in the polling around uh, uh, people's sympathies towards BLM, where when right after George Floyd was killed uh, in the early days of the, um, of the movement, and even when the riots were going on in Minneapolis, you had something like 57, 60% of the United, uh, American population saying that they were sympathetic with the movement. Well, that fell off pretty dramatically uh, as the summer went along. Uh, and specifically, it was tied to images coming out of uh, property destruction. Now, anybody who's followed this closely knows that, like take Portland as the kind of primary example, Portland, Oregon. The, the protests and the um, clashes with police there were really confined to a, a couple of blocks. I mean, it was it was a very small a small area where there was anything like uh, you know this sort of burned out husk of a city that has taken hold in the American popular imagination. But you know, I mean, you have that media environment of if it bleeds, it leads. So the only images that are going to come out of a place like that are going to be of trash cans on fire, you know, of uh, like a cop bleeding from his head. Like uh, these, these are the images that are going to get seared into the public imagination. And part of that is because the left doesn't, isn't organized enough in the United States to have its own media environment that can compete with the corporate corporate media, uh, which, you know, whether or not it is considered to be liberal or conservative on the American scale, uh, is definitely going to lean into the interests of the ruling class, right? Um, so I think that the BLM movement, the attempts to make the BLM movement as radical as it should have been, like let's, you know, I, I'll acknowledge the morality of what was being asked for. Uh, that was almost doomed from the start because it just doesn't, there's, there isn't enough fertile soil in the United States or something like that to grow yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One really random question that I've got, though, um, because you you did mention when we were talking about um, right-wing organization once a transition happens and the increase of domestic terror, uh, it it kind of fell back into, I think, most people's minds with with lockdown and sort of people being stuck at home and distance education, Zoom education, etc. But do you feel like there's a chance that this right-wing organizing rise of the militias, you've got Proud Boys, you've got, well, Proud Boys at the forefront, but you've also got like three percenters, Patriot Prayer, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like it's going to affect um, the very American branded school shooting uh, condition. Huh. Yeah. Uh, I haven't really thought about how those things are going to um, overlap. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not really sure there. I mean, I thought about it after I saw Kyle. Uh, when I saw Kyle Rittenhouse's picture for the first time, I was like, ooh. Yeah. Um, he's young. He is young. Yeah. He's got like sponsorships and everything. I feel like 
there's a possibility not that he's like setting an example but low-key he you know he's setting an example oh yeah especially in trans and everything of like you can be young and cross borders with your your rifle and walking wherever you feel you've got enemies and um open fire really and if anything if you go to jail you've got like bail funds for, for you and sponsorship deals and right clouds. i mean he's he's a he's a perfect example of the the sort of dangerous uh the, the some of the potential dangers that you're talking about because i think that there's there's a pretty good chance that he never that he is not convicted for those killings uh i think that there's a pretty good chance of that and if that happens He's immediately going to be a rich celebrity, right? He's, yeah, he already did in it. He got bailed yeah. on two million. Right, something. right. Uh, but I'm what I'm talking about is like if he does not end up in prison, he has a, a, a like gold lined position for him in the right wing media uh, ecosphere. Like he he's just going to slot right in uh, to the you know Alex Jones. Um, end of things there and he is going to just make bank doing speaking tours and you know somebody will ghostwrite a book called uh, like My Struggle by Kyle Rittenhouse you know like he's going to make tons of money off of this uh, if he doesn't end up in prison which I think is uh, I would I would give it better than better than 50-50 odds that he's found not guilty on those charges uh, because of the way the American legal system works so yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse is an example, and I don't know. It wasn't entirely clear to me what your question was in terms of the school shootings. Are you asking like, do I think that the potential school shooters are going to not shoot up schools and instead shoot up protests? Is that what you're asking? Um, it, not exactly. I feel like um, schools in the U.S. and of course I've got little to no experience, and you can absolutely correct me on that end. But they kind of work as a political microcosm. Hmm. And um, whereas for many years, uh, school shootings were dealt with on the mental health spectrum of things. And then sort of like it started getting political with the whole idea of the incel and the channel. And then you had the Christchurch massacre and like sort of like it started being politicized. But I feel like if schools reopen like state, like nationwide, mm -hmm you kind of have it's already gone political it's gone like fully political what started with incel mentality and misogyny grew into chana racism and uh, transphobia homophobia what have you and this mask this cult of masculinity mm -hmm. being heightened by examples like kyle rittenhouse who is just he's he's just as young he like you know it's sort of like this message of like if he can do it why can't you and you know you've got all the wokies in your school and you've got all the, the liberals and the antifa and the queers in your uh, your school if, if you know if they, he can do it why can't can't you and then it, also you've got the boogaloos with this sort of like this i don't like the word accelerationism <laughs> um i feel like it's very badly used in this sense but like this idea of like in, in throwing wood into the fire mm -hmm. you know and trying to to spread uh militia type thinking and guerrilla type hatred and etc this this thing of like uh just trying to bring violence into every corner you can bring it yeah paramilitary thinking yeah i mean there there's something to that um i i would say however that 
I mean, I think you certainly will continue to see hate crimes play out in American schools. Um, they always have. Uh, I don't want to say they always will, but they probably always will. I think the idea that like the politicization of school shootings in the sense that you're talking about political motivations is maybe not brand new. I mean, even back to the most famous school shooting probably in American history, the Columbine Massacre, uh, which took place the year I graduated from high school. So we're talking, oh God, I'm old, right? 1999. Um, those kids were not necessarily explicitly political, but they certainly were a very clear prototype for the kind of channer culture of like glorifying the things that the rest of society finds horrible simply because the rest of society finds hor finds it horrible. And that's in that case, I mean, they were very much at least um, I forget which of the two was sort of the more kind of leader uh, um, driven one here, whether it was uh, Eric or, or Dylan. Uh, but uh, they were, you know, they had a website up uh, that was all about how Hitler was awesome, right? I mean, it was it was indistinguishable, aside from it, you know, looking like uh, um, 1999 web pages. It's pretty indistinguishable from the kinds of things that you would see uh, on 4chan or uh, today. Um, so that has always been there. This kind of like embrace of being an outsider as a defense against. Um, uh, against feeling like an outsider, right? Like you go, yeah, I'm a weirdo, you know, fuck you, right? I mean, I did that in high school. I, did, uh, uh, I, I didn't do it to the point of shooting anybody, but I, I'm sympathetic to that. I think that the more ideologically minded people that you're talking about, I think it's unlikely that they're going to turn that in, inward into their schools. Um, you know, the, there's, I won't rule it out, but the people that uh, are getting radicalized online, these mostly young white men, right, teenage boys, you know, 14 to 17, who are starting out on 4chan and then making their way uh, over to Parlor or whatever, um, I think that they're much more likely to target uh, people outside of schools. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a spate of, you know, mosque or synagogue shootings that are carried out by yeah. very young people. Um, there was actually a great example of this, and I'm trying to, hold on, I'm going to do a quick little search here. I think it was the American Identity Movement, AIM. Uh, one of the bigger uh, neo-Nazi or uh, white supremacist fascist groups in the United States was actually founded by a kid that was like, you know, 14 years old, right? Um, I seem to remember there was like a New Yorker ca uh, um, cartoon years and years ago uh, that had, uh, you know, this dog sitting at a computer uh, with the, the, the caption, you know, on the internet, nobody knows that you're a dog. And, and um, the same is true, nobody knows. No, it wasn't, it wasn't AIM. Uh, it must have been one of the other ones. There's so many nested groups, but at least one of these... Serious name, um, AIM, AIM. Oh, of course. Well, you know, they're very clever. I mean, one of my favorite ones that just uh, shows you just how smart and funny all of these people are is uh, a, a local uh, neo-Nazi organization that calls itself the Nationalist Social Club. Wow. Yes, right? So it's very, fu it's very funny, very funny. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very clever. Um, but uh, 
At any rate, at least one of these big groups was actually founded and run, and I think he had he had given himself himself some ridiculous name, like you know, ultimate leader or something, uh, the, the, you know, basically like replaying the Fuhrer principle online. But nobody who was involved in the group realized that this kid was in fucking high school, right? And he's running a national white supremacist organization. I think that that's. You know, that's an ambitious example of what we're talking about. But I think that that's more likely um, in the end. I think that that's, that's the more likely outcome for these kids that are getting radicalized online. I don't think that they... Certainly some of them might turn it inward into the schools. But I think it's more likely... Uh, that they would get involved in stuff that's going on outside of those schools. Uh, and Kyle Rittenhouse is an example of that, you know? I mean, in many ways, he kind of fits the profile of what we w would have considered to be, like, prime school shooter material. He's a disaffected teenage white kid who feels alienated from his school environment. You know, the stuff I had read about him was that he was kind of, like, he creeped people out at school. Nobody really liked him. He was kind of a loner. Um, but instead of taking a rifle into school, he took it to Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, so, you know, I guess if you want to think of it in terms of, like, there's a kind of potential energy of violence in certain people's psyches as a result of whatever traumas they've suffered and whatever, like, shit they've gone through, uh, that potential energy of violence, it's like, it's like an electrical charge, right? And when it hits a certain point, it's going to discharge. Uh, but it might be channeled by what they come across. And if they're, what they're coming across is, you know, oh, the Jews run the world um, and they're not really humans, then I think it's more likely to be channeled at the local synagogue than it is to be channeled at the kids that push them into lockers at school. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you had any, because you did mention that you live in a pretty blue state, um, have you had any contact or any local experience or like hearsay from these malicious proud boys most of all but any other as well yeah there's a there's a small but uh visible uh neo-nazi movement in massachusetts um so i mean i've you know, I've been counter-protesting at Trump events and seen people throwing up uh, the Nazi salute. Uh, there's been some uh, stickering in a nearby small city that's, you know, famous for being uh, very liberal, kind of the, like, lesbian mecca of the United States. Um, somebody posted up, the, actually it was the, the Nationalist uh, Social Club that I was talking about before. Uh, somebody posted up a bunch of swastikas around the city there. Um, in terms of like real, you know, taking to the streets type stuff, there's ongoing um, occasional demonstrations in Boston, uh, the nearest big city. Um, there is a uh, sort of small conglomeration of groups that operate in Boston. Uh, NFC is one of those. Um, you have a group, you'll love this. You have a group that calls itself Super Happy Fun America. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Super Happy Fun America was um, uh, came to prominence last year when they staged a uh, straight pride parade in Boston. Um, was it the one that had like 10 people or something like that? I saw a picture of that. I, I didn't make it to that one. I think that that one was pretty small. Most of their events are pretty small. 
the, yeah. the most famous example of this was uh, basically the week after Charlottesville, uh, the group that orig- that that later morphed into Super Happy Fun America uh, was, uh, attempted to put on what they termed a free speech rally in Boston and they had uh, originally on the guest list they had a bunch of the same speakers as had been in Charlottesville um, and uh, they ended up with about 40 people uh, 4-0 whereas the counter protesters brought out 40,000 um, that was a really incredible day yeah. Wow. That. Yeah. Okay. We love to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was that was exactly the model that I would love to see going forward. And that's why it's so frustrating to see things like, you know, uh, sort of the the liberal establishment pulling back from telling people to get out on the streets to counter protest when uh, the million mega march is coming to town, right? Because the way that you can solve these problems without a bunch of people ending up dead is you just demonstrate that like no we're not interested in this shit like you are alone you you are isolated right you you're powerless you you show these people that like you know thousands and th- upon thousands of people will stand up against you um unfortunately it took something as extreme as the death of uh heather Heyer to make that happen uh and it took that sort of like immediacy of well you know just last week in charlottesville this this occurred and you know the same people are here today so there's a core of people locally who uh who do go out and counter protest and who do try to follow up and 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 do intelligence and figure out who these people are um but you know just like all radical politics in the united states uh it's a pretty tight-knit community on both sides like they're just there just aren't tons of people that self-identify either way as uh, as fascists or anti-fascists in in my area. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What about QAnon? Like, I've been trying to pretend that QAnon doesn't exist, but it's not possible at this stage. I've never been a fan of conspiracy theories. Yeah. So I've always just like chalked it up for being something silly, as opposed to like um actual neo-nazi neighborhood movements right gaining traction and militias etc but as it turns out like it's a bit impossible to ignore QAnon at this point so well especially since QAnon in many ways has morphed into kind of an overarching uh it's not explicitly neo-nazi but certainly it's compatible with uh with a sort of anti-semitic fascist worldview right um all of these things ultimately come down to like if there is if you have a um, if you have a conspiracy theory that posits some secret group that's controlling the the, the elite of the world, it almost always, if you scratch the surface, tr- surface turns out that somebody is claiming that that's the Jews, right? Um, yeah. And you know that that's sometimes made explicit in uh, uh, in the QAnon movement, and sometimes it's actively denied, but it certainly is compatible with those types of, of worldviews and. What's more, I think it's kind of a, a, it's sort of a gateway drug, right? Like, if you believe in this QAnon conspiracy theory, it's real easy to get you to believe in lots of other crazy things. Uh, And maybe if you believe in those things, then you'll come out to a rally and be, uh, uh, you know, willing to to shout at some other people across the road from you. And then, you know, the next step and the next step. And it just leads into that whole spiral of radicalization. What I am really going to be curious to see is what happens to the QAnon believers when Trump is no longer in office, right? So it's, uh, 
it's going to really like separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of who really believes it and who is just like uh, who's going to move on to the next wacky thing that they read about on Facebook. Um, I mean, if you put yourself in the mindset of, of uh, somebody who's into this, uh, this sort of like nested set of conspiracy, uh, of Russian conspiracy dolls here that is QAnon, you know, what you're, what you're looking at is a world that is essentially based upon, like at its core, uh, is about the exploitation uh, and ritual murder of children. And if you really think you live in that world, then the morally correct thing to do is to try to kill a bunch of the motherfuckers that are responsible. Mm -hmm. So this is like, uh, this is one of those moments where it's like, I think you're going to see how real it is for people based upon their actions. And I think for most of them, it's just going to be basically the equivalent of an alternate reality game. It was something that they did to spend, to waste their time when, you know, they weren't doing work at, at their, uh, in their cubicle. But for some yeah. people, right, like the guy that walked in and shot up ping pong pizza in, in Washington, D.C., for some people, it's real enough that they're going to act on it. They're going to see themselves as the saviors of the world, and they're going to try and, you know, take down the pedophiles. Yeah, I, uh, I, I vibe with your remark about, like, once the transition happens, which people are going to fall out of the Q conspiracy? Because you've got people from, who are adept to QAnon, being elected to Senate mm -hmm. based on the whole QAnon platform. Mm -hmm. So once Trump, well, assuming that Trump gets dragged out, kicking and screaming, thrown out into the front lawn of, of the White House, and Joe Biden goes into his brilliant and spotless presidency <laughs> unquestioned, um, it kind of loses the narrative in it because you don't have a Trump within the system to fight the system. So who is what happens to Q then will 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 what will he be his drops what is he going to be saying at Aiken and what is going to be the narrative of the savior what's going to happen I'm going to assume that like Trump's not going to be arrested it's just not going to happen no absolutely not yeah so what's going to happen are people going to expect him to be fighting the the deep state from his empire Trump Tower in New York what's going to happen to that yeah, I mean, well, probably, I mean, if Q, like, whatever Q is, whoever it is, probably, what's his name, the, the owner of 8chan, right? Um, yeah, who, Watkins. Yes. Yeah, definitely Watkins, I think, yeah. Uh, but at any rate, who, whatever is behind that account at this point, uh, if they bother to continue posting, there are some people that are going to believe whatever, uh, like, bizarre justifications or stories um, that comes up with, right? It's like, you know, if you're a comic read, a comics uh, reader, like uh, uh, sometimes you come across a plot line that is just so stupid and out there, but you're like, well, it's a fucking comic book. Okay, I'm gonna go with it, right? Some some of these people are gonna read it like the comics. Um, other people will become disgusted with it. They probably won't be convinced that they were wrong because nobody ever admits that they're wrong. What they will probably do is they'll look for. Um, They'll look for another guru. They'll look for another, you know, spiritual leader uh, who's going to help them take down the pedos, whatever that, wh whatever the pedos really are, right? They're going to look for another layer to the onion, because I think once you get into, once you get deeply into that kind of conspiracy-minded thinking, um, there's really not much, no, really not much any place to go there except to go deeper, right? 
Um, we kind of talked a little bit last time about uh, about one of the books that I um, uh, the Umberto Eco one. Yeah, exactly. And that's this is yeah. one of the reasons that I think that that's such a vital read for anybody who wants to understand uh, what's going on here, right? Um, he, I have, I just happen to have, uh, like a, a, I've been trying to do a little bit of writing about this to, to get my, um, my thoughts on the topic, uh, together. And I, I, and I just have a, uh, uh, pulled up in front of me here. One of the things that he had written in there, hold on one second. He says, uh, in trying to describe this type of thinking, this is, you know, within the plot. So it, it doesn't exactly, uh, it doesn't exactly track outside of it, but I think you'll get where, where he's going with this. Uh, rule one, concepts are connected by analogy. There's no way to decide at once whether an analogy is good or bad, because to some degree, everything is connected to everything else. For example, potato crosses with apple because both are vegetable and round in shape. From apple to snake, by biblical association, from snake to donut by formal likeness, from donut to life preserver, and from life preserver to bathing suit, then bathing to sea, sea to ship, ship to shit, shit to toilet paper, toilet to cologne, cologne to alcohol, alcohol to drugs, drugs to syringe, syringe to hole, hole to ground, ground to potato. Rule two says that if tout se tient in the end, the connection, the connecting works. From potato to potato, uh, it, so it's right. So if you can make a, a connection, it, that connection is valid, is what he's saying. Rule three, the connections must not, be, no, must not be original. They must have been made before. And the more often, the better by others. Only then do the crossings seem true because they are obvious. So basically, like, this brings it back around to that, you know, Operation Mindfuck kind of thinking of the Discordians, right? Of, uh, of Robert Anton Wilson. Wilson, right? Or um, of the Church of the Subgenius. If you can connect it, right? The rule of uh, rule of 23, isn't it? Like everything is connected to the number 23, depending on how hard you try to connect it. Well, what you're doing here is you're just building these mind palaces that have no relation to the real world. They don't actually have, they're untestable, they're unfalsifiable. And in fact, this pattern of thinking can only ever confirm your suspicions. Anything that seems to disconfirm those, those, those suspicions is in fact proof that you were right all along. And we can see how this is related to the political problems of our age. When we look at, you know, uh, when we look at uh, something, for example, like in um, Mein Kampf, Hitler says of one of uh, the uh, newspapers that's opposing the Nazi party in Germany at the time, uh, that um, such and such a newspaper is constantly criticizing us for relying on the, um, uh, the, the, the protocols of the elders of Zion, this famous like forged document that's supposed to be the Jewish world plot. And Hitler says, the fact that our enemies say it's fake is proof that it's real. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's where we're at, right? Uh, there's no longer any standard of judgment of what, what the real world is, um, aside from what you, what you have already heard and continue to hear echoed to you in your little media bubble. And anything that intrudes from outside is simply proof that you were right all along. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. And I feel like that's sort of like part of a kind of 
um, makes me a bit averse and not that interested into conspiracy theories. Like, it's interesting from an outside perspective to see how people react and become dedicated to it. Um, but it's patho but it's also pathological. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the more you see how people, I remember from the group OMF, um, there was this one post that I did about, oh, tell me about uh, a musician death that really shook you up. And I mentioned like Chester Bennington and then people pulled, there was someone like fucking pulling in the QAnon conspiracy that Chester Bennington was working against sex trafficking of children yeah. and Chris Cornell and then they got murdered or something like that and then it just kind of, it kind of becomes so, um, such a fantasy um, narrative that it, it has a certain difficulty to hold weight for me and that comes like, I'm a person who reads um, not a lot, but a fair bit of political theory. So I know what it's like to be to read something exhausting, and, and that can seem a bit far fetched to the times. But conspiracy theories, they they just go off the the tangent for mm -hmm. me. And um, I don't know, like it, it's interesting to see what makes people so enamored by them, but at the same time, it's quite frustrating at the same time i suppose well it makes it makes real perfect sense to me that people would buy into these things in the modern world because what they are is an antidote to alienation right mm -hmm. they give you they're at very least they're amusing like you said right it's exciting you feel like you're being you're 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 sort of living part of a spy novel right but at their best if you get really invested in these things, what they're telling you is you are part of something bigger than yourself. You're a part of some important quest that has meaning in a, in a, in a life that you don't feel has very much of that. You know, I mean, that the modern capitalist situation, especially in days of COVID, where our closest connections to people is likely to be mediated by a screen, it's very tenuous. People are extremely lonely, and people don't feel that their lives actually contain a whole lot of significance. And this says to people, this allows them to take part in something that's bigger than themselves, that is a, a morally righteous quest. It, it makes them feel powerful. They hold knowledge and secrets that others are not aware of. It speaks to all of the pathologies of modern existence. It fills those holes in a way that is safe for the power structure that exists currently because it doesn't actually require any kind of redistribution or material change, right? So it's not, uh, it's not actually dangerous to the system as it exists um, because the enemy is always infinitely powerful. You can't take down the pedos. You have to wait for Donald Trump to do it. And now that Donald Trump has failed to take down the pedos, pedos they're going to wait for somebody else. But the whole time, they're going to feel like they're doing something by reposting. It's bullshit. It's a, it's a short-circuiting of the political instinct to make life better, right? Most of the people that are falling into this, don't get me wrong, there are some like seriously, I, I hesitate to use the word evil in any context, but there are some evil people that are involved in this. But for the most part, these are folks that if you met them, they would probably be kind to you. They may not understand you or I, they may not get us, but they would be polite. They would probably be you know, willing to help you change your tire uh, these are not perfect people. They may be bigoted. They may have all kinds of problems, but they're not monstrous. And they're made monstrous 
because they have been so utterly crushed by modern life that they're they're latching onto anything that looks like it could help them keep afloat psychologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything that gives you hope at the turn, at the current landscape? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if if nothing else, I think that the the structures. Uh, and the, uh, I, I think that the, 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 the way things work is becoming less and less, uh, um, prima facie acceptable. People are much more willing to reject, uh, the, the, the system of the world as it stands right now, um, because it's so obviously destructive and broken. The problem there is when they reject it, what comes after? Uh, so I have hope. I think that we're coming up to a, a moment uh, of uh, in, an inflection point. I think we're coming up uh, in, 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 in the near future, in the next decade or so, to a real sea change in uh, affairs, at least in the United States, if not the globe as a whole. And that does give me some hope because in those types of moments, uh, of change, positive change can happen. But unfortunately, so often in human affairs, changes that come in those moments are negative. And that's really what I'm afraid of, is that we are just going to reject what we have now for something that is so much worse, but out of desperation for anything that's different from from where we are. Yeah, yeah, surely. I kind of, I I share that feeling. I, I'm trying to relocate most of my hope to Latin America. I'm not sure mm-hmm. how Brazil's going to attract over the, the next couple of years until leading up to Bolsonaro's possible re-election. Honestly, I think that he's probably going to be re-elected as much as that this pains me to say. <laughs> um, but I don't think that the campaign will be... I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. At the same time, like it's direct democracy. and there's Actually, that would give out an entire other episode like the fucking honestly electoral college yeah uh, if if i can remark one thing about the liberals that really really annoys me as someone who comes from direct democracy and mandatory vote is that people keep saying the one thing that really annoyed me in the whole discourse was like Oh, if Trump wins, that's the end of American democracy. This cannot be the end. This is the last free and fair demo- election. I feel like the the framework and the parameters for U.S. citizens to um, label something uh, free and fair dem- democracy, free and fair election, the U.S. perfect and untainted democracy, um, very beyond the idea of countries that have direct democracy it does not feel like democracy in that respect i i kind of feel comfortable saying that the u.s has never had like a, a truly free and fair election because voter suppression and oh yeah and electoral college and you know no the constitution is the constitution is garbage it's a terrible document it's incre- incredibly out of date uh, and it was designed to be anti-democratic of course we, we haven't had a free and fair election we're not supposed to Mhm. Mhm. And a lot of people pay, place be, blame in the bipartisan model. Personally, um I think that the problem runs deeper 
because as much as it yes it is annoying to and living in the uk now you've got the tories and you've got the labor party i don't like either i also don't like the alternatives <laughs> um uh, i understand how frustrating it can be to, for people to feel like they have to succumb and um commit to a party regardless of how much they identify with it i i do bring pretty dismal, dismal news to people that having more parties in power is not much of an improvement and i think that brazilians who have just gone through the headache of the mayor and local elections and everyone who kept up with brazilian politics from 2013 onwards has seen like it, if you think that it's pretty annoying to deal with two parties imagine when you have to deal with the you've got the pt the psdb the democrats the republicans you've got pcb mm -hmm. on the left and pc from pc which it's a, pretends to be from the left but it's not and then you've got pdt and you've got novo and you've got reddit and you've got like all so many centrist parties and it, everything gets fragmented that is not far right mm -hmm. so people keep it's it's so screwed up that people think that the problem is bipartisan politics but really like if you had like extra 25 parties it would the problem would still not be solved yeah yeah no you're you're 100 right about that uh i will say that uh I, I mean, I'm certainly not a fan of having essentially my, my choices to be between the, the Republicans who, you know, essentially are a death cult at this point and the Democrats who are enabling the death cult. I don't love that. Uh, I do recognize, though, that like a multi-party parliamentary system is clearly not perfect because, I mean, look at all the fucked up multi-party parliamentary systems out there. But one thing that the United States does really do extremely poorly um, is we have a system that is very easily gamed to allow minority rule. Uh, so the, the, you know, electoral college is a perfect example of that, where um, if you do the math out, I, uh, I, I, it's been a while since I've seen this, but you could theoretically win the presidency with a shockingly small percentage of the voters supporting you. You know, you could lose by something like ten or fifteen percent in the in the actual vote count, and still win the electoral college. Um, and the way that gerrymandering works, uh, you know, that's actually something that hasn't really been talked about very much in the aftermath of this election. But uh, the um, census that has that's concluded this year, twenty twenty, is going to lead to redrawing uh, um, legislative districts um, and those districts in most states are drawn by the state legislature. So whoever controls that legislature gets to draw the districts and the uh, party in control of that legislature generally uses extremely uh, advanced computer mapping to make sure that they will get a majority of the seats, both in Congress, both in the state legislature, basically at every level of government, uh, to the point where um, uh, so in, in certain cases, in extreme cases, you can have a situation like in North Carolina, where in, I believe it was 2018, Democrats won a majority of the um, votes for Congress in that state. If you add it up, did, you, did people vote for a Democrat or did they vote for a Republican? The, the Democrats won a majority of the votes for, uh, for Congress in the state of North Carolina. But the North Carolina Democratic, uh, sorry, the North Carolina congressional um, uh, representatives were split something like 
10 Republicans to three Democrats because the votes were split up very strategically across uh, um, district lines to pack as many Democrats into a, a, a few districts and then attenuate them across a bunch of other ones. So, you know, things like that are just baldly anti-democratic. And they are the only thing that keeps the modern Republican Party in power. Uh, so there's no way that we're really going to see that change at any time in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. And, I've, and it's quite... A, it's quite concerning when people were saying that Biden, apparently he's the, the president-elect with the most votes in American history. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, was it like 67% turnout, something like that? Uh, it was above 60. I haven't uh, followed it closely enough to be able but to say. But it's under 70, right? Yes. Uh -huh. That's low. Oh, of course <laughs> it is. is low yeah and still and still it kind of like it's even with the most votes in the history of his country he still won on the razor thin margin yeah and well what people don't say when they throw that around right most of the time when people are are putting that figure out there it's they're you know basically like uh, uh trying to build up biden as having uh some mandate to govern but of course, what they what they don't say is that uh, Donald Trump also won more votes than any winning uh, presidential candidate in American history. Mm. He just he just got less than Biden, but he also blew the doors off, blew the doors off the place. You know, in the end, this election was far closer than it had any right to be. Far, far yeah. closer. There's a great piece if you want to look it up. Uh, Nathan Robinson wrote a great piece piece in the Guardian about this. Uh, where he just sort of like picks apart all the ways that the Democrats absolutely screwed the screwed the pooch in this election um, by doing exactly what they designed what they set out to do right they 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 ran their game plan and it worked but it worked barely and it will not work uh, unless you are running against Donald Trump and even if even if you were running against Trump, if COVID had not been so utterly and completely botched, he would have won again easily in a walk. Mm. All he would have had to do to win this election would be would be to uh, it would be to actually follow the advice of the medical professionals within the United States government and limit the spread of COVID. If he had done that, he would have won this this election easily, easily. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me back in, I think that the first presidential election that I voted on was in 2014. And it was uh, Dilma versus ISU mm -hmm. in Brazil. And Dilma was um, the successor, well, the symbolic successor, but she was nothing like in terms of governments of Lula, who is like sort of like Brazil's hero of right. social democrat policies and everything with the Workers' Party. But she won, if I'm not mistaken, just about the same margin that Hillary lost. It was like a million. Actually, probably was less than a million. It was like between 400,000 and a million, two million tops. I, I, I can't remember correctly, but it was like points. She, she had like 50.4% of the votes mm -hmm. in that direct democracy in a country with like 250 million inhabitants between 250 and 300 million 
So it was a razor thin win, and everyone was, and that was in the direct democracy. That no electoral college, nothing like that. One vote, one one vote. It's the vote that gets counted. Surely right. enough, um, that was one year after a few protests against Dilma were started stirring up. So she got re-elected by a very thin margin. Uh, within a year and a couple of months of people started protesting, the, the far right side started co-opting a formerly <laughs> protest to try and bank her out. And um, that was also r around the time of the Arab Spring as well, 2013, and then 2014 she got re-elected. And then, sure enough, 2016 she got, she got impeached over some... Mm -hmm. because Congress was racked up against her. Right. And, you know, all the, the votes that she collected in the presidential election, most people who were voting with her, they didn't really keep that consistency throughout voting for Congress because Congress gets voted in the presidential election as well so you've got senate congress and uh pr presidency all in the same year so she got racked up against the congress votes and they passed a completely illegal coup um impeachment process and were able to get her out and also like her vice president was completely like in liaison with the the right-wing media and the yeah. right-wing parties and he just flipped the switch like that. Right. Now, surely enough, like Biden, when you've got like a Democratic ticket, both both candidates, you've got the, the president and the VP, they're both Democrats. In the case of Brazil, you've got like coalitions. So Workers' Party were in a coalition with PMDB, which is another right-wing centrist party to try and like make ends meet. And then they were able to pick up the votes from that. But first opportunity, PMDB just like turned around and you know, stabbed them on the back mm -hmm. and then were able to pass a coup. And um, it makes me feel, a lot, it's not the same situation that Biden is right now, but it does come to show that if you're winning elections by razor thin margins, do not take your mandate for granted, especially with the whole Hunter Biden thing coming along. You know, um, whether it's legitimate or not, it doesn't really matter. Trumpism has shown us that like, yes. Um, you don't. It doesn't have to be legitimate for people to bank on it. And if you've got a Senate and a Congress that get stacked up against the executive power, mm -hmm. they don't need a whole lot of evidence to push through an impeachment. You know. Um, yeah. Fair and coops are not meant to be constitutional. That's the thing about coops. They never. They never are. You know? No, you're absolutely right. And I and I would certainly not be surprised to see if uh, in 2020, when I I suspect that the Republicans are going to regain control of the House of Representatives, they they will keep control of the Senate. Uh, I would not be terribly surprised to see a um, an impeachment proceeding against Joe Biden the same way that there was one against Trump. Now, you know, I think that as much as I uh, uh, um, have a great deal of disdain for Joe Biden, I, I don't think that he's involved in anything that's blatantly criminal, but that doesn't matter, as you said, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the process is going to be used politically, and the facts just, the facts can bend to fit what's convenient. Um, yeah, you know, so we may well not have to wait until twenty twenty four to get <laughs> to get a um, get rid of uh, uh, Joe Biden. Of course, uh, you know, in the U.S. system, unless uh, it's unlikely he'll be removed. Uh, that's you know, at least through legal processes, just the way that the the impeachment process works. Um, 
But with that said, um, the those apparatus of government can be used as uh, basically a show trial in the public court to bring the, the, the campaign right into the halls of Congress. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll just have to see. I, I just feel like there should be a wariness and that maybe um, Democrats kind of get... Uh, of course, everyone knows that they got a bit too comfortable too fast. But um, we're, we're yet to see just how comfortable they got and how fast they got comfortable. Now, my apologies that this episode actually ended in a quite a abrupt way. Um, we weren't planning on ending it by then, but the episode was already pushing on two hours of conversation. However, you'll be hearing more from us over time, and we've already got some stuff stacked up and some ideas floating around. So thank you very much for listening. And if you need to reach out to me, you already know my Twitter, Livestock Ascend, my Substack, Livestock Ascending. If you want to pass on any messages to Patrick, please let me know, and we will be structuring background worlds a bit, a little bit better uh, over time from now on. And um, thank you very much. <laughs>